invariably brings the coronal to Zimroel, the second continent, a place of gigantic cities interspersed among tremendous rivers and great unspoiled forests. More rarely he goes to the torrid third continent in the south, Subrael, largely a wasteland of Sahara-like deserts. Two other functionaries became part of the Majipur governmental system later on. The development of a method of worldwide telepathic communication made possible nightly sendings of oracular advice and occasional therapeutic counsel, which became the responsibility of the mother of the incumbent coronal under the title of Lady of the Isle of Sleep. Her headquarters are situated on an island of continental size, midway between Alhanroel and Zimroel. Later, a second telepathic authority, the King of Dreams, was set in place. He employs more powerful telepathic equipment in order to monitor and chastise criminals and other citizens whose behavior deviates from accepted Majipur norms. This office is the hereditary property of the Barjazid family of Suvrael. The first of the Majipur novels, Lord Valentine's Castle, tells of a conspiracy that succeeds in overthrowing the legitimate coronal, Lord Valentine, and replacing him with an imposter. Valentine, stripped of all his memories, is set loose in Zimroel to live the life of a wandering juggler, but gradually regains an awareness of his true role and launches a successful campaign to reclaim his throne. In the sequel, Valentine Pontifex, the now mature Valentine, a pacifist at heart, must deal with an uprising among the metamorphs, who are determined to drive the hated human conquerors from their world at last. Valentine defeats them and restores peace with the help of the giant maritime beasts known as sea dragons, whose intelligent powers were not previously suspected on Majipur. The story collection Majipur Chronicles depicts scenes from many eras and social levels of Majipur life, providing detailed insight into a number of aspects of the giant world not described in the novels. The short novel The Mountains of Majipur, set 500 years after Valentine's reign, carries the saga into the icy Northlands, where a separate barbaric civilization has long endured. And the most recent of the Majipur books, the Prestimian Trilogy, set a thousand years prior to Valentine's time, tells of an era in which the powers of sorcery and magic have become rife on Majipur. The coronal Lord Prestimian, after being displaced from his throne by the usurping son of the former coronal, with the assistance of mages and warlocks, leads his faction to victory in a civil war in which he, too, makes use of necromantic powers. The story presented here offers an episode dating back to a time before any of the Majipur novels published so far, a period more than 4,000 years before Valentine's time, more than 3,000 years before Prestimian, but its setting is 10,000 years after the time of the first human settlement, and the early history of Majipur is already becoming legendary. The Book of Changes 
Standing at the narrow window of his bedchamber early on the morning of the second day of his new life as a captive, looking out at the blood-red waters of the Sea of Barbarique far below, Ethan Fervain heard the bolt that sealed his apartment from the outside being thrown back. He glanced quickly around and saw the live, cat-like form of his captor, the bandit chief Cassinabon, come sidling in. Fervain turned toward the window again. As I was saying last night, it truly is a beautiful view, isn't it? Cassinabon said. There's nothing like that Scarlet Lake anywhere else in all Majipur. Lovely, yes, said Fervain, in a remote, affectless way. With the same relentless good cheer, Cassinabon went on, addressing himself to Fervain's back. I do hope you slept well, and that in general you're finding your lodgings here comfortable, Prince Athan. Out of some vestigial sense of courtesy, courtesy even to a bandit, Fervain turned to face the other man. I don't ordinarily use my title, he said stiffly, coolly. Of course, neither do I, as a matter of fact. I come from a long line of East Country nobility, you know. Minor nobility, perhaps, yet nobility nevertheless. But they are such archaic things, titles. Cassinabon grinned. It was a sly grin, almost conspiratorial, a mingling of mockery and charm. Despite everything, Fervain found it impossible to dislike the man. You haven't answered my question, though. Are you comfortable here, Fervain? Oh, yes, quite. It's absolutely the most elegant of prisons. I do wish to point out that this is not actually a prison, but merely a private residence. I suppose. Even so, I'm a prisoner here. Is that not true? I concede the point. You are indeed a prisoner for the time being. My prisoner. Thank you, said Fervain. I appreciate your straightforwardness. He returned his attention to Barbarique Sea, which stretched long and slender as a spear for fifty miles or so through the valley below the grey cliff on which Cassinabon's fortress-like retreat was perched. Long rows of tall, sharp-tipped crescent dunes, soft as clouds from this distance, bordered its shores. They, too, were red. Even the air here had a red-reflected shimmer. The sun itself seemed to have taken on a tinge of it. Cassinabon had explained yesterday, though Fervain had not been particularly interested in hearing it at the time, that the Sea of Barbarique was home to untold billions of tiny crustaceans, whose fragile bright-colored shells, decomposing over the millennia, had imparted that bloody hue to the sea's waters, and given rise also to the red sands of the adjacent dunes. Fervain wondered whether his royal father, who had such an obsessive interest in intense color effects, had ever made the journey out here to see this place. Surely he had. Surely. Cassinabon said, I've brought you some pens and a supply of paper. He laid them neatly out on the little table beside Fervain's bed. As I said earlier, this view is bound to inspire poetry in you, that I know. No doubt it will, said Fervain, still speaking in that same distant, uninflected tone. 
Shall we take a closer look at the lake this afternoon, you and I? So you don't intend to keep me penned up all the time in these three rooms? Of course I don't. Why would I be so cruel? Well then, I'll be pleased to be taken on a tour of the lake, Fervain said as indifferently as before. Its beauty may indeed stir a poem or two in me. Cassinabon gave the stack of paper an amiable tap. You also may wish to use these sheets to begin drafting your ransom request. Fervain narrowed his eyes. Tomorrow, perhaps, for that, or the day after. As you wish. There's no hurry, you know. You are my guest here for as long as you care to stay. Your prisoner, actually. That too, Cassinabon said. My guest, but also my prisoner. Though I hope you will see yourself rather more as guest than prisoner. You will excuse me now. I have my dreary administrative duties to deal with. Until this afternoon, then. And grinned once more, and bowed and took his leave. Fervain was the fifth son of the former Coronal Lord Sangamore, whose best-known achievement had been the construction of the remarkable tunnels on Castle Mount that bore his name. Lord Sangamore was a man of a strong artistic bent, and the tunnels, whose walls were fashioned from a kind of artificial stone that blazed with inherent radiant color, were considered by connoisseurs to be a supreme work of art. Fervain had inherited his father's aestheticism, but very little of his strength of character. In the eyes of many at the Mount, he was nothing more than a wastrel, an idler, even a rogue. His own friends, and he had many of them, were hard-pressed to find any great degree of significant merit.